Welcome to Acamedia, brought to you by the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. This is Michael Kackman at the University of Notre Dame and... And Stephanie Brown from uh, St. Louis University. Woohoo! Okay, this is all kind of weird because um, there's all this new stuff. For starters, Journal of Cinema and Media Studies doesn't just flow off the tongue yet. We need some practice there. Yeah, just say it three times fast and you'll get into it. Yeah, and here we are at episode 46, <laughs> and it's the first episode that's not introduced by Chris Becker. I'm um, delighted to be joined by Steph Brown, uh, stepping in uh, as a guest co-host, but um, kind of miss Chris's voice over there. I miss Chris's voice. <laughs> but Chris will be back soon enough, and we wish her the best, but this gives us a really good opportunity to uh, welcome you into a, a, a different chair on the show. I know. I am super nervous, so hopefully everyone will forgive my first time hosting nerves. I'm used to being able to record and edit everything that I say. Oh, come on. You have, you have, I mean, of course you're nervous, but you have no reason to be. You have serious podcasting chops. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say. It's true. <laughs> Man, those segments you've done already are so good and got so many people uh, following back up and really glad to hear and you did it with polish and style and pizzazz. So thank you for doing well, that. I appreciate that. If I could help just one person not want to jump out of a window during their job search, then I feel like I've done my job. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh, impact to have on the world. Uh, so how are you doing with your with the new gig? You are, what, more than two months in at, at your new position? and Yeah. And you haven't uh, jumped out of a window yet? No, it's been great. I'm liking it a lot. I mean, it's weird going from grad school where teaching one class at a time and mostly consumed by your dissertation for the last couple of years. Uh, not having that hanging over my head has been weird. And teaching four classes has been an adjustment. Uh, that is a lot. Just, I, I had to make a calendar on my wall in my office that has like what I need to do every day to prep for each class because the mm. first couple of weeks I was just like forgetting what I had said or done in one class and what I needed to grade and who I needed to follow up with for emails. So just the logistical, the logistics of teaching four classes was a lot to get used to. Oh, that's a huge load. Yeah. Are you, do you have any repeat preps in that or is it four different classes? No, luckily it's two. Uh, so it's two public speaking mm -hmm. classes and then a media and society class and a popular culture class, which I've taught a couple times before. So it was just a little bit of tweaking on that one. So yeah. it hasn't been too, it could have been worse. It's not too bad. It's still a lot of work and, a, and a, yeah. a big cognitive load just in trying to uh, get adjusted to the new environment and new sets of students and all that stuff. Oh, for sure. And I have to take my own advice that people gave me in the um, job segments because I am also still on the job market because mm -hmm. uh, this is only a one-year position. Right. So teaching, getting used to a new job, and also still applying for jobs and not knowing where I'm going to be next year. And so just literally everything that people told me in their interviews is now coming to fruition in my own life. So well, good. It was an investment in yourself. It really was. I have to keep listening to it every couple of weeks to remind myself mm -hmm. of, of the advice. It's a challenging time, but you have a lot of people in your corner and hope that um, very, very good things follow out of this. Well, thank you. Yeah. Having the SEMS like a community on Twitter and Facebook has felt really nice having to leave my grad school bubble, like my little home. It feels like I took everybody with me at least and like going to flow and then like looking forward to going to the conference in Seattle. 
it's like you really feel a sense of community. And like, even if you're moving around the country, you mm -hmm. still are like bringing the media studies community with you, which has been really nice. And that is, you know, at the, at the risk of uh, taking advantage of your um, smart observation and turning it into a segue, that <laughs> I think is part of the uh, unifying theme of this episode is that, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at different scales and in different environments, so much of what we do is about building and extending communities in various kinds of ways. We have an interview uh, that Bill Kirkpatrick does with Derek Compare talking about what it means to be a chair um, in a, in a uh, media studies program. And then we also have a field notes interview that Amy Villarejo does with B. Ruby Rich at UC Santa Cruz. And those are both two segments that I think in different ways maybe kind of capture this this problem of trying to trying to figure out what your community is and then trying to build bridges uh, across and within it. Yeah, I thought the B Ruby Rich interview was so interesting just hearing the way that she's connected her crit like working as a critic, working in the industry, working in film festivals, working in academia and trying to really build, I think she called it a um, when she was talking about taking over film quarterly as film quarterly editor, like building an umbrella to bring everybody in and to really try to connect. Um, those worlds and expand film and television and emerging media criticism for everybody to be able to write and to read and to and to contribute to. Yeah, I love that characterization too. And she's done so many things in so many different environments. And um, we may not all quite match her uh, profile <laughs> and output, but that sense of engagement at all those different kinds of levels is something that we probably can all find um, some wisdom in. So we're going to uh, listen to that interview, and then we're also going to uh, have a, a conversation about, about what it means to be a chair in a department of film and media studies. On that note, let's go ahead and take a listen to this excerpt from Amy Villarejo's interview with B. Ruby Rich. Hi, I'm Amy Villarejo. I'm a professor in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. I'm here in Toronto uh, for SCMS 2018 on March 17th, 2018. And I'm here to interview B. Ruby Rich, who is professor in the Department of Film and Media at the University of California at Santa Cruz and also the head of the social documentation MFA there. She's known to anyone who's watching this uh, as one of our most cherished critics and uh, cultural activists in the field of cinema and media, the author of Chick Flicks uh, from Duke uh, in 1998, and the author of New Queer Cinema, The Director's Cut, also from Duke University Press. Um, Ruby, this is a treat. Hello, Amy. Great to be here with you. It's so exciting to get to talk to you. Um, longtime friend and inspiration to me. Um, when I was starting to think about how to launch this conversation and reading over the questions that they provided to us, um, I made a list of the roles that I think you've played in our profession over the course of your long career. Um, and while we're addressing you here as a professor um, at UC Santa Cruz, 
um, and think of you, obviously, as an educator training generations of students, both undergraduate and graduate, as many of the other participants in this series have been doing. Um, you're so much more than that. Um, you've been a programmer. You've been a curator. You've been an arts administrator. You've been a juror. You've been a critic. You've been a journalist. You've been a scholar. You've been a researcher. And there are probably a, a bunch that I haven't thought about. Um, and so even though the sort of explicit remit for this interview is to think about both the shape of our field of film and media studies as well as how you've been shaped as a contributor to that field, we may go a little bit outside of the parameters that others would be more comfortable staying within. Oh, thanks um, for the warning. To think about <laughs> the journey that's taken you um, from uh, the other kinds of roles you've played in, in film and media culture more broadly to your current um, eminence uh, as a professor um, in the profession. So could you start by talking about some of the formative moments for you in encountering film as a medium you wanted to engage in? Oh, well, thanks for that introduction and thanks mm -hmm. for that question. Um, a lot of people involved with film came to film as kind of lifelong geeks who were finding everything, watching everything. I wasn't. I was the person in my family that made them turn off the television. And um, I was really obsessed with books, not with films, um, not with movies, which is what they were then. And um, I was a child in the days before video, uh, before cable, and before anything internet. So um, I had much more limited involvement. And I think it was a fairly ambivalent involvement because my, some of my first experiences with films were of being terrified um, by uh, Hitchcock's Psycho or some other, or, or Polanski's Repulsion and um, wanting to not go near a movie theater again. Um, but nonetheless, I did go near a movie theater again. And in fact, in college, I ended up uh, going to the film society, the College Film Society, uh, for an opportunistic reason, um, I was selling popcorn to make my rent money. So my first engagement... That I didn't know about you. <laughs> my first engagement with film was really in, in a social sphere. And I think that actually the sociality of cinema, as shown on a big screen in a darkened room with a bunch of people, was really key to my getting involved with film. Um, and I think it shapes all of the different perspectives I bring to film mm -hmm. as a result. Um, it was never a singular text in a room by myself. It was always being part of a crowd. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, it was a major, at that time, a major social space. Yes. So as much as clubs, especially if you were too young to be getting legally into clubs. Yeah. Um, and so art house theaters, repertory cinemas, uh, college film societies mm -hmm. were all really my training ground. Yeah going to see strange films that I knew absolutely nothing about mm -hmm. and couldn't Google. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that was part of what started my journey into film. That's, um, it's exciting to learn about those origins, but also so helpful to think about 
the idea of the social is really what grounds these multiple activities that are directed in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the journey from from that college film society experience to becoming an arts administrator, both with the New York State Council on the Arts and uh, with the School of the Art Institute at Chicago? Yeah. Well, it was very fast because I got out of college and I really missed having this constant stream of 16-millimeter prints going through the house uh, because my friends were running the film society. And in the days before video, you couldn't see anything that wasn't on offer um, at the movie theater. Um, And so um, in those days, you couldn't see anything that wasn't on offer on a movie theater on, like, first release or maybe repertory. So this was the one way, running a film society was the one way that you could get to see things you wanted to see. Uh, And so what happened was a year out of college, a friend and I started a little film society in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And he was my pal from from the college film society. And we got some projectors and we went to the Woods Hole um, community board and got the use of the uh, town kind of the, the town hall meeting room space mm-hmm. on Main Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to the church and got chairs and we built a screen and we made a banner and we began to order our first films. And t- I, wrote, I wrote the copy. He made the drawings. We handmade posters and colored them and put them up around town. And we um, opened up on a Friday night you know, in June. And to my delight, there were, there were long lines of people outside waiting to see the film. And I thought this was something magical, that you could order a film with stationery you invented and get someone to send it to, send you. It right to you. They would send it, yep. and then you would say you were showing it, and people would believe you. And I thought, I mean, obviously this was a really ordinary thing, but I thought this was like alchemy. I thought this was really magic. And everyone was so excited because Woods Hole had a huge summer institute at the Oceanographic Center there. Mm-hmm. And these were all people from cities, from bustling campuses, and there was nothing to do. It was a beach town. Absolutely. And so the big thing to do was to come to us, and we showed a different film every night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We dressed up in costumes to go with the movie. We made mixtapes that had the music of the period. We went on the local FM station and talked about what we were showing and played clips. Mm-hmm. And we were just full of ourselves. Um, and we had uh, a fan that would dro- drove from Boston, would bring us the popcorn so we could give out free popcorn. People collected the posters. They would fight in front of the stores to get the posters when the old ones came down. We were a phenomenon for one whole summer, at the end of which we moved to Chicago, and in the next couple of months I got hired at the film center to sell tickets on its opening night and to type its programs. Oh, you were a secretary? Not even. I had a full time. I was working as a bicycle messenger in Chicago. Uh And as my little extra thing, I would type up, Okay. The programs and go, show up uh, on Monday and Wednesday nights and or Wednesday and Friday nights and sell tickets. And um, after a couple of months of this, the woman who had founded the film center with an NEA grant got another grant to hire an assistant. And there was no way she was going to hire one of the PhDs from Northwestern or University of Chicago right. that wanted the job. She was too intimidated by them. But I was this kid who thought this was all wonderful fun. Right. So she hired me and I quit my job and went to work, and I, I actually had an old-fashioned apprenticeship. Yes. 
I went to work at the film center. Yeah. We subscribed to all these journals. I started reading film, um, film quarterly. Mm -hmm. I started reading Sight and Sound and Film Comment. Mm -hmm. We had filmmakers in person. So very quickly, I met Kenneth Anger. I met King Vidor. I met George Kuchar. I met Cavalcanti. I met Herzog. And over those five years at what is now the Gene Siskel Film Center, yes. I really got film history and a training in film and film analysis and to a much lesser extent, film theory. Yep. In a moment in the academy when uh, you know, arguably we're professionalizing more and more and more and teaching our PhD students what that professionalization um, should entail, mm -hmm. um, that education that you received was so much more than a PhD in cinema and media studies. I would, I would like to think so. an immersion into the art, language, and philosophy of the image. At an incredibly vibrant time in yes. film production. Absolutely. And also, in terms of, of film studies, uh, at that exact same moment, uh, these people arrived from London because he was teaching at Northwestern and she came along. So Peter Wallen arrived to teach at Northwestern and Laura Mulvey came along. And so I met them. Yeah. I began to meet lots of other people through them, to read other people through them. So I was getting this education from all directions. And um, I didn't have any filter telling me that I had no right to this. And so for five years, I just soaked it all up, at the end of which I left the film center, began writing for the Chicago Reader in a weekly column, mm -hmm. began teaching uh, courses at the School of the Art Institute, mm -hmm and began to curate programs for the Walker Art Center or for other places, began to go around and give lectures. Um, Judith Main brought me to Ohio State. Other people brought me to other places. I was trying to make my rent money. Yes. And um, it was all a discovery for me. Yeah. And film festivals were always a very big part of it. So my network really expanded nationally and internationally by going to New York Film Festival, going to Telluride, yes. going to the, the very last version of Kanaka Heist yes. that ever took place in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And um, it, was, it was thrilling for me. It was a kind of um, first-hand way of learning um, that I don't know that people get very often. I was extraordinarily lucky. And flying off of all of that in 1980, um, I was brought up short by the election of Ronald Reagan. And I thought, now what am I going to do? And I heard about this job at the New York State Council on the Arts in New York City. And um, I applied for it, and I got it. And in um, January 1981, I became the director of the film program at the State Arts Council. So let's scale back again just yeah. for a moment and talk about Film Quarterly, which is... I know, occupied an enormous amount of your time. Well, over you're the, on the board. I'm on you the board and, right, um, and have been lucky to be part of that journal's transformation and um, largely through your vision and, and hard work. Um, can we talk about why you were willing to take on such a heavy-duty editorial job at this point in your career, um, what you sought, to accomplish through that editorship, uh, what kinds of goals you have had for the journal and where we are today? Wow. Um, I tried not to become the editor. I gave them lots of suggestions of other people to hire. 
But I finally decided to do it when pressed, when other people had turned it down, actually, I think. Uh, in part because I wanted to try to create a different sort of playing field for writing um, in, in the discipline. And um, at that time, I don't think there were any journals apart from Framework that were edited by a woman. Um, now that's different, now that uh, Caitlin has taken over Cinema, Cinema Journal. Journal. Yeah. But at that time, you know, Film Comment. Um, Maybe Heather uh, Hendershot was the editor of Cinema oh, Journal. Oh, that might have been. Yes, when you you're took right. On you're right. Quarterly. That might have been the case. Mm -hmm. Might have been the case. But well, surely I think it, not no, a no, lot it wasn't. Women. It was still Will. It was Will. Oh, it was Will. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, and uh, I really wanted to create a space where people who were publishing in so many other different journals, whether that was GLQ, or whether that was the American Studies Quarterly, or whether that was um, just lots and lots of different places, could have an entree into a shared space. Mm -hmm. And that's probably out of a nostalgia for the old days of the Village Voice or the old days of Jump Cut. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's replicable probably today mm -hmm. um, with so much divided attention and with so many platforms to choose from and so much competing content. But um, I think that was part of it. It was the, kind of this fantasy that if you could bring a lot of different people into the tent, then more folks would start poking their nose in, not the camel, but actual people yes. would start um, looking inside and enlarging a sense of a shared discourse. So that was my fantasy, Yes. Um, to try to bring more people on board, um, to have it be a place where queer and heteronormative and trans people could publish, mm -hmm. where Latino writing could go on, where um, black writing could go on, where Asian American writing, where people who knew China better than I did could vet articles about the new documentary in China, uh, where people who knew television better than I did could write about Transparent, uh, where people who knew black cinema better than I did could come in and co-edit a dossier on dimensions in black, that there could be this kind of brave new world mm -hmm. where expertise could be absolutely rigorously located and then shared and not siloed in the way that it seemed to me had become the norm. And so. also continuing to try to speak outside of academia, um, to straddle uh, many worlds. Um, but, but one of the things that you continued to be excited about in, in terms of the journal's past reputation and possible futures is that reach um, right. that all of these voices that you're collating would then have. That's right. And I think that's what interested Ford, was the idea of something that went beyond the university walls that could raise the level of discussion and understanding and reach out beyond into different communities, yes. um, inside academia and outside academia. Yes. Because there's a lot of smart people are out there who are not teaching or in graduate school. And there has to be some way uh, to keep people engaged, to use their skills, to use their intelligence, and um, to try to move forward this understanding that we have of film and television and evolving platforms. Because right. if we don't do something soon, we're sunk. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, well, on the, on the sinking of the ship, um, that theme, you've written um, editorials for each of the issues that you've edited um, of Film Quarterly. And one of the 
things that's emerged most profoundly is um, a set of meditations on the role of cinema and media in the face of uh, racism, violence, uh, neoliberal control, um, Trumpism, but on an international scale. Um, so we're not just talking about where we sit um, here in North America, but are thinking more broadly. Um, what is your sense of how the cinema and media and other medias, <laughs> um, if we think capaciously about that term, um, are functioning politically and how the voices that you're collecting and disseminating through Film Quarterly are participating in a political culture? Well, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that Film Quarterly is part of an international dialogue. I don't know if it is, frankly. Um, but I was very excited recently to be able to publish an article about um, a Syrian cell phone documentary and um, non-cell phone documentary, more formal portraits, emerging over the different stages of this horrible, horrific slaughter going on in Syria. And, um, uh, and doing an aesthetic analysis of stylistic tropes in that situation, but at the same time um, enforcing a politics of the image and of the dignity of the image yes. in those circumstances that was very respectful of local values and local trauma. So I think that on occasion we've been able to do that. Another easier example perhaps uh, was um, <clears throat> the web piece that we published uh, by Judith Main about the Cinematheque Francaise and its egregious behavior when it was finally um, asked to put on a retrospective of Dorothy Arzner based on the one um, inspired by Judith Main's writing that San Sebastian Film Festival had organized. And the Cinematheque had rejected Judith's essay because they wanted to commission their own. And when it appeared, and when the women co-sponsoring the exhibition came to the Cinematheque Francaise and discovered the essay, they discovered in fact, that it was an essay attacking Dorothy Arzner, talking about her as a mediocre filmmaker, and heaping scorn on the feminists and lesbians who had elevated her beyond her rank into being a director of importance. It was completely scandalous. And um, uh, Judith Main wrote this wonderful piece for us that was immediately taken up by some of the feminist film websites in France, translated into French, published online in France, and um, we'll see where, where, how that plays out and where it ends. But, um, so sometimes we get involved in some of these. Yeah. A similar thing happened with the censorship of the uh, Busan Film Festival mm -hmm. um, in South Korea over the, um, sense, over the screening of a documentary having to do with the sinking of that ship and the captain of that ship. And the head of the longtime head of the film festival was fired over this. And we did a whole dossier on that with different people who were involved with that film festival, weighing in on it. So we've been quite interested in having a voice in those, some of those international moments. Yes. And I hope it's something we can continue. Um, I want to do more translations. Mm -hmm. We did this with um, the uh, cluster of articles on Encina Paz mm -hmm. and with a special dossier on Eduardo Coutinho, mm -hmm. um, one out of Brazil, one out of um, um, Uruguay and um, Paraguay. And um, 
These, I think, have been wonderful cross-cultural moments. I hope to do something now with Susana um, de Sousa Diaz um, and her filmmaking in the archives of the dictatorship. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm limited by what people want to do, what people want to write on, um, what people will... We, oh, I know, we did another piece on the Battle of Algiers um, who, um, that actually looks at the architecture of the city not only at the film as a film, but at what the film reveals about the built environment yes. and um, the start of a new kind of architecture that would have really strong racist implications yes. down the line in France itself. So I love these different ways of using the journal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's close textual analysis, as in the Chantal Ackerman dossier. Yes. Um, but even then, I couldn't resist. I went back to this earlier period of my own life in the 1970s in Chicago, found the video interview that I did with Chantal, had it transcribed, and made a little flip book in the corners of the pages with the image of the young Chantal in her 20s, barely 20, who came and stayed with me in Chicago and reluctantly agreed to do this interview. That is a beautiful way to close. Ruby, thank you so much for participating in this Field Notes project. And... Let's go to the next film quarterly party. Okay. <laughs> thanks so much, Amy. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for your diligence and for you know maintaining the standards of the field with the greatest sense of humor of anyone. Thank you. Okay, that was a that was a that was a great portrait of a pretty fascinating activist and scholar and filmmaker. Yeah, it really just gives you somebody to look up to coming out of grad school. Like she has done so much for the field, uh, both industry and academic, and it's a uh, it's pretty impressive. It is impressive, but you know you have time. Yeah, <laughs> so much time. And what we had there was really just a, a kind of teaser, a piece of a larger interview that Amy Villareja did with Be Ruby Rich that is part of the SCMS Field Notes series, which is a collection of interviews with prominent scholars and others in the field that are collected at the SCMS website at www.cmstudies.org. So if you want to hear more, go check it out. All right, so next up... Let's uh, continue this theme of thinking about what it means to build a constituency and a community uh, for media studies across different kinds of environments and give a listen to an interview that our very own Bill Kirkpatrick did with Derek Compare, who is chair of film and media arts at Southern Methodist University. Hi, I'm here with Derek Compare, Associate Professor in the Meadows School of the Arts at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Derek is the author of several books, including Rerun Nation, How Repeats Invented American Television. He also wrote a book on CSI. And most recently, he is the co-editor with Derek Johnson and Avi Santo of Making Media Work, Cultures of Management in the Entertainment Industries. Most relevantly for this discussion... Derek is chair of the Division of Film and Media Arts there at Southern Methodist, and he joins me today to talk about that role. Derek, welcome to Acamedia. Thanks for having me on. So Derek, we wanted to have this conversation because there's a fair amount of mystery out there about exactly what a chair does and what that role entails. Can you open just by telling us what does a chair do? 
Uh, chair is basically the primary point of contact between the faculty and the upper administration, uh, usually a dean, and it's, it's a dean in our case here at SMU as well. So they make sure the department's needs and plans are being facilitated by upper administration. But they also um, bring communication down from uh, the dean's office and upper administration down to the department. So if there's initiatives college-wide or university-wide, the department chair is, is really key, uh, key with that. So it's a lot of uh, vital administrative work on uh, every level, macro to micro to everything in between there. And, and I'm sure we'll get into the details of that, but it is a whole lot of hands-on making sure the department runs, basically, making sure that it doesn't uh, burn down, uh, <laughs> literally or figuratively, yes. uh, in your job. So. so for the record, I should say I am chair of my department here at Denison University, a small liberal arts college. Your institution is, we could say, a medium-sized university. You have about 9,000 students, maybe, uh, as I understand it, about 60 undergraduate majors, and then you also have a master's program there. So clearly the role of the chair is going to differ depending on the kind of institution that you're at. But I think one of the really interesting things is the way that the role of the chair differs from that of the ordinary faculty member. So I'm wondering, in your experience, how much of a difference does it make uh, making that leap from faculty member to chair? It's a huge, huge difference. Uh, this is my fourth year as chair. Um, we have uh, three-year terms for chairs, and, and you uh, generally renew unless things are going terribly either way for people. And um, I'm enjoying it overall. And it's, uh, but it's very different than being a, a general faculty member. As a general faculty member, you're fairly monastic in this way. You teach your classes, uh, you do your research, you write your articles and books. You do some committee work, some advising, you know, those sorts of things. So you're not completely disconnected from the life of the department and the university. But when you're chair, that administrative stuff, that's your top priority. That has to be your top priority. That's your primary function is to make sure things get done, basically. Uh, and along the way, you understand more and more about how your college and university work. You understand more and more about the people, uh, the different initiatives, the controversies, <clears throat> the histories, where some of the bodies are buried, you know, those sorts of things that you didn't really, weren't that connected to as a faculty member. And so you're kind of getting this, this sense of, of the cogs of the machinery issues you may have been impatient with or, or not understanding clearly why things were done in particular ways when you weren't, uh, weren't, didn't have that kind of access to that winter chair, you really understand a bit more about, okay, this is why this is going to take this long, or this is why this can't be done at this particular point. Do you have any examples? Yeah. Uh, our longstanding issue in our program, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I could talk about, but one of the longstanding issues we have is with our facilities, with our building that we're in. This building is 65 years old. It is shared with several other departments, uh, as well as with uh, one of the big dining halls on campus. And so it was originally built to be the student union in the 1950s and uh, was renovated 30 years ago to uh, to move in these, these academic departments. And that's been fine overall, and we've, we've made it work. But because of the age of the building and because we're all just kind of squeezed in here a bit, it does make it difficult to expand. But at the same time, I do realize 
we've got to basically uh, deliver on that. We've got to basically use our facilities to the maximum. In other words, if we're, th- if we're at full capacity, if we've got more undergraduates than we can handle, if we're bringing in high demand, if we can show that. And, and this is, the I think, the, the killer point that it took me a while to realize, you really have to have uh, donors kind of willing and lined up uh, to make new facilities or significant renovation happen. And that's something I didn't really appreciate as much until I was chair, you know, this sort of sense of, well, why can't we just get a new building or why can't we do this and that? And you realize once you get into it, that part of it is just a massive, long-scale undertaking to uh, get funding in and to, to court that and develop that. As in, term, in, in addition to the construction plans and things like that, that could take years, you know, if not a decade or more to really bring to fruition. So being a bit more understanding, I guess, about the pace, the possible pace of change, even though it's frustrating when you see new buildings going up across campus, but it is something that, that you realize uh, the department's got to do its part to, to kind of make that happen a bit more to, to kind of build those relationships with, with potential donors and things. And that's, some, that's an important aspect of being chair that you don't really think about at all as a faculty member or those sorts of aspects. Needing to work so closely with administration and, and explain that bigger picture to your colleagues, do you find yourself increasingly thinking like management and drifting away from that perspective as a faculty member? That's a great question. Uh, and I think in terms of the, the, the usual way academics respond to being chair, you know, it's always uh, congratulations and condolences, right, when people find out that they're, they're chair or congratulations. Um, but I think what I've learned to appreciate is, is the importance of administration and the importance of effective administration and that some things that seem kind of limiting or that seem uh, bureaucratic uh, in large part, a lot of those things are pretty necessary. A lot, a lot of those things kind of make things happen in, in, in the grand scheme of things, they, that they relate to the larger whole. So I know in the last few years I've become to be a lot more sympathetic to the perspective of administration than, than I was previously. That's really well put. And I think I would just add that one of the additional challenges for me in that gap between faculty member and chair has been finding myself in the position of having to lead the department. These are colleagues, many of whom have many years of experience on me, who have been here for much longer. And suddenly, just because I have the title and just because I'm in that role, I'm expected to be the one who is checking in on people and who is making sure that everybody is on board with whatever we're trying to do and finding myself in this leadership position that I'm really not trained for. And I think a lot of us didn't necessarily, you know, a lot of us get into academia because we like working alone or we like running our own classes. We like doing our own research and that sort of thing. So it's a strange thing to be thrust into the role of chair where suddenly you are a team builder. Suddenly you are, suddenly you are responsible for keeping spirits up and the esprit de corps and, and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. That's a great point about uh, having to manage people, having to to lead people uh, in this way, and having to listen to people and understand them. And, and one thing, and in and in my case, and I'm sure in your case too, these are the people that hired you, right, in the first place. These are the people that were, were senior faculty when you came in, you know, years back. You know, uh, at least or at least a few of them are going to be. So it is sort of interesting. And in, in my case as well. 
two of these senior faculty were chairs previously. So they, they'd been in this office. And so there's sympathy there and there's an understanding, but there's also a sense of, well, how are things going to be different? You know, how are things going to, uh, how is, how is he going to handle these, these sorts of issues that we've had to handle in the past? Exactly. So yeah, uh, that part of it is, is tricky. That part of it is hard because you're trying to represent people. You're trying to make sure they're heard, but at the same time, you're trying to manage them a bit. Uh, you do need to lean on some people for various things. You get to know and, and understand how people work more than you would have had to deal with previously. Because again, as you said, as a faculty member, you're doing your own thing and you're making sure your own career and your own kind of uh, trajectory is going on. As chair, you're basically responsible for everybody in there and you're basically having to make sure they're all at least doing what they're they're supposed to be doing uh, as well as contributing to the health of the department. And so one of the things that's been tricky, and I'm sure you know any chair can relate to this too, is when you've got other committee work, other kinds of particular tasks, who do you ask to do that task? Who is going to be effective in leading that subcommittee? Who's going to be reliable on getting that information in on time and those kinds of things? So the managing of, of people, and, and I say that in, in the broadest sense of the word, just sort of listening and understanding, but also kind of like you said, you know, coaching them and, and uh, getting them come along, that's... Uh, emotionally, that's the hardest thing about being chair. So a particularly challenging thing this year for me was that my administrative assistant, my admin, as, as we call them here, uh, she lost her job in May of this year. And she'd been with us for six years. I can't go into the details of, of why and, and everything, but um, she was no longer able to work here. She'd been such an integral part of, of our department in terms of how we relate to the whole idea of the department, of, of, of you know, who's there to do these things, who's there to you know, represent us and be accountable and everything. So when that happened, it was, it was pretty traumatic. Um, so as a result of that, I had to spend the summer basically running things solo um, until uh, the job was, was filled. And so along the way, then you're dealing with HR more, you're kind of working with them and about the job posting itself and filling the job process and everything, going through applications and interviewing people and, and these sorts of things. And you're realizing throughout this whole process that this is a massive kind of shift. This is, you know, when you're replacing a person that's that vital, it is a big shift in how uh, you're oriented. It's an opportunity to kind of reinvent what you're doing and everything. And so as I was looking at people, and, and different applications had to weigh those kinds of elements in there. What kind of experience? What sort of, do we want somebody internally? Do we want somebody from outside? Do we want you know, somebody with particular kinds of different experience and these sorts of things? And luckily for us, uh, in the process, as it turned out, I had a person that, that we ended up hiring who has been uh, incredible. She's been amazing. She's been very different than the person that held the job previously, but she's just got uh, an energy and a set of skills that I, I saw on paper and that really came out in person. And the rest of the faculty has been really incredibly impressed by her as well. And so that's something that, again, has changed the texture of the department, changed the way we manage, changed our kind of expectations, but in a positive way. So it, it's, it's kind of bittersweet in some ways because we miss the person who was there before, but we really love the person who we have uh, in this vital role as well. Uh, and again, I was the one 
having to make this call and make these decisions along the way uh, as to the hiring process and everything. And so I felt a lot of the weight on that, you know, getting that right. Um, and, and I'm so glad that it turned out really, really well. But that's just one example of, you know, you can apply that to any faculty member you're hiring, any, um, you know, whether it's adjunct or tenure track, any kind of decision like that is going to have a similar kind of impact there on how you do things. And it really demonstrates the degree to which chemistry and the personalities involved and the constellation of, of, of folks who are working in the department, you swap out one person and the entire thing can, can take on a different character. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the, the, the crazy thing about that. That's an aspect of, of, that's a critical aspect of being chair that you never talk about in grad school, that you never are trained about whatsoever in that, you know, you're focused on your research, you're focused on, you know, going through the archives, you're focused on the, the, your, your writing skills and your presentation skills, which are absolutely vital uh, in your teaching. But this aspect of it, you know, not at all. Uh, and it's very, very critical uh, to being chair. One thing that you and I were lucky to get in grad school, having both gone to Wisconsin, was a healthy appreciation for mentoring and an understanding of how to help other people with their work. And I find that really invaluable because I figure, you know, the department's going to run itself. The college is not going to collapse regardless of how well or poorly I do my job as chair. But I really feel a huge responsibility to help junior colleagues get through the review process, get through tenure. And in some ways, I almost see that as job one, that, that mentoring dimension of the, of the role. No, you're right. It's, it's a critical part of that as well. And we do have, um, we have two junior faculty on uh, tenure track right now, uh, one who's uh, just in his fourth year this year and one in her third year. But you're right, once you bring somebody in, that whole process of mentoring, and it's different everywhere. That's the thing that, that's really critical with this, that there's general kinds of things about that. But the particular situation at your particular institution, how things are done, what people are going to look at and understand at the college level, at the university level, those sorts of things are, are different in every institution. And so a lot of what you have to do as chair is is help to, to communicate, help to translate what here's how we do things, here's what our expectations are to the junior faculty member. And you want to give them the opportunity to do their thing and uh, Whatever whatever that uh, entails in terms of resources that you can that you can help them to do that, but at the same time communicate with them what are the expectations above that. And this is something I'm sure you've run into and in, into the documentation that you need to send up the chain. How to communicate that person to the people above that, to the dean's office or to the provost or whatever, and, and making that really clear in your annual review letters and in the uh, third year review letters and these sorts of things, and making sure you're doing your part to make sure that that person has the best shot uh, at getting tenure if they deserve it. And, and I totally agree with you. You know, you, you've got, you want to get that person hired. You want to make the best choice there. You want to get the person through third year review and you want to get them tenured. And if you do all three of those things and as somebody really, you really believe in and support, then that's, that's a huge win. But the department's got to be, and the chair's a vital part of all of those, all three of those moments there in that, in that person's career. So what, do you wish that junior faculty understood about your role in that process um, or even faculty, senior faculty who maybe haven't served in the chair role? What, what would you want them to know about your responsibilities and the way you're seeing the department? 
Well, for, for mentoring junior faculty, just that, you know, there's a bureaucratic function of the chair. You know, everything kind of goes through the chair and there's various letters and, and signatures and, and, and things to do that. In a larger sense, beyond that is, is the broader responsibility for the department and for the program. As chair, you have a, a huge interest in seeing things, the, the bigger picture, and kind of like that helicopter view, if you want to say, of, of what is the overall enrollment in our classes? How are our students progressing through the curriculum? What are the issues where we don't have enough classroom space? Uh, what sort of facilities are we lacking for things or, or gear in our case? What are things that the faculty wants to do that we can try to facilitate? And so being chair gives you the ability to kind of give that perspective and help these projects out and help, help them along and listen to people about what they want to do. Uh, and so th- that's an aspect of it. Again, if, if people want to do something, they shouldn't just sit back and, and, and moan about it. They should talk to their chair. <laughs> Uh, I reach out to my faculty beyond the annual review. You know, obviously we talk and just see each other in the hall and everything like this. But last fall I went and did one-on-ones with each faculty member just to say, you know, hey, what's on your mind? What do you want to do? What, what, what are we not doing that you want to do? What are we doing that we, you don't want to do? You know, what are your thoughts about what's going on? And, and get a sense of that. And that I see as a big success. If we're talking to each other about important stuff <laughs> and we're, we're, we're dealing with the problems head on, we're not letting them fester. I just, I just want to be in a position where I don't let the practical things override the desire. Let's, let's hear what we want to do. Let's figure out what we want to do at least and, and get all behind that. And then we'll see if we can, we can make it work. So I want to be... I want the default to be yes, uh, basically, but sometimes the answer has to be no. Um, but I want it to at least let's run that up and see what we can do with that. And, and learning, that's something I've learned a lot about in the last few years about what's feasible and what's not and, and what, how you can kind of uh, turn no's into yes and how you can manage that. And I've had some situations go the other way where things sounded really, really great and then they just kind of fell apart. But... Again, my, my, my general stance on that is, is if this is something we need to do and this is something we want to do, let's put our best case forward for it and keep pushing. So you mentioned before that when colleagues, you know, when you get appointed to the chair, your colleagues are sort of like congratulations and condolences. But what are the rewards? Why should somebody look forward to this role? That's a great question. It's been rewarding in a sense of really kind of understanding what the whole, in almost in an ex- existential sense of, of, of really what it is that we do and how this relates to the larger sense of what a university is. And so it's more, it's more kind of specific to the idea of higher education rather than to our own field in this way. I think there's, there's things you can do that relate to the field more broadly, and, and certainly you know, there, there's aspects of the chair that relate to that as you're representing the field of the larger university. But I think the reward for me is just, oh, I understand now how this endeavor, this thing that we do, works. I built relationships with people, with other chairs, with uh, people in the dean's office, with people in higher administration uh, that I wouldn't have had access to if I hadn't been chair. I've been able to make decisions about the department that, that are, are largely shaped by, by my priorities and interests uh, rather than just sort of sitting back. You know, and again, I try to be collective and collaborative with this, but sometimes I have to come down and say, well, this is how I think we want to represent this. This is how I think we want to go. And, and that's been satisfying, too. Typically, just in terms of other rewards, typically you get a, a course release, 
uh, that, that could be you know fairly generous in, in SMU. Our, our usual load is a 3-2. As chair, I've got a 1-1 load. That's not bad. Uh, so that just a, a kind of material reward with that uh, to shift around. But it is, it's more work than even that course release would, would indicate, basically. And I'm sure you probably agree with that, too. Once you're tenured, I like to think of it this way. Once you're tenured, you're in, you're in kind of a committed long-term relationship with your university. You're basically, you know, their fate is tied to your fate in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think you need to accept that and, and you need to, to see ways you can kind of help contribute to that. If, you know, if the university, if your program in university's health is going to help you out and if you can help that out in a larger sense uh, and you've got an interest in that, you should really uh, take an active interest in that and pursue that rather than seeing it as, as this obligation, like you drew the short stick or something like this, you know, use it as an opportunity to make some, some positive uh, kind of change and, and, and learn more along the way. So switching gears just a little bit, I know you feel very fortunate in how harmonious your department is, but not everyone can be quite so lucky. And there might just be that one person who's making life miserable for everybody else. (laughs) So I'm just wondering in your experience, as you've gone through this role for several years, what advice might you have for folks who are kind of dealing with more difficult personalities or personnel situations? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. As you said, luckily we've been, we've been very harmonious with this, but even, even along those ways, that that isn't to say, you know, there aren't particular issues with people. There's issues with everybody. We all have our own particular quirks and things. You know, somebody can be very enthusiastic and, and never, but also never reply to emails. Somebody can be very difficult to reach, but then when you when they're on a task, they do it amazingly, and you know, with all of their with all of their their soul. So, uh, you know, again, luckily we don't have any particular personalities that have been perennially uh, difficult. It's just a matter of, of learning how to understand where everybody's coming from and, and manage that. So, I think. Having an appreciation for uh, emotions and psychology is a big part of that, trying to understand where people are coming from based on their history. And the more you know people, uh, just even as a regular faculty member, that always helps out with that. And that, that doesn't only apply to your faculty, by the way. It applies up the chain as well, too, that people, other people you have to deal with just to be sort of, you know, understand, try to understand where they're coming from and things. If you get in a real kind of bind with this, uh, that's where you seek counsel from outside. Hopefully you've got somebody at your institution that you can turn to to mentor you, you know, uh, in these kinds of decisions. And again, as I said, I've been very lucky here uh, in, in our dean's office. The dean and the associate dean are great sounding boards. So I think be sympathetic to people, understand where they're coming from. And if there are issues, really try to, to work at them in a way that's going to be productive in the long term, especially if they're tenured. You don't want to you don't want to get in any kind of uh, make situations more difficult for somebody that's tenured because you're tenured, the other person's tenured. Neither of you are going to go anywhere, probably. So you might as well try to make the best of it, but but really try to convince them uh, to help out with that again. And so um, uh, that part can be kind of emotionally taxing and draining in some ways, but but ultimately can be rewarding if you're able to to come to an agreement and come to an understanding and and move on with that. Yeah, as someone with a short fuse and a quick temper, I, I just know I'm not going to learn that until it's too late. <laughs> 
So we've talked about the department and the institution. What could the field as a whole maybe learn from a chair's perspective? Well, we all come from different sorts of programs. And I think uh, particularly if you're coming out of grad school and in, into a program um, and you're uh, a tenure track faculty member, uh, or even if you're not, just understand your program, learn as much as you can about it as as you're in there and, and try to understand that and, and how it does things and why it does things in particular ways. But at the same time, I think uh, all of us in, in media studies uh, need to take a broad look about how media studies relates to uh, not only the role of your department, but the role of, of your college and university. What is the role of media studies in your particular institution? How can you best advance that in whatever kind of arrangement that you have, whatever kind of situation that you have in your department? So in our situation, it is a combination of production and studies. Uh, it is a combination of a, a liberal arts approach to all of that and, and a holistic approach to, pe to producing people that are uh, most likely going to, to want to have careers in the media industry. And we've embraced that, and, and we want to understand that, and we want to make that uh, most effective. So rather than kind of have a, a singular understanding of what the field means to you coming out of your graduate program, which, which in most grad programs you're going to be really trained in, really kind of hardcore, temper that a bit with your situation in your own particular place and be able to uh, see the larger thing, which is what is the role of what, what you're doing in media studies? How does that relate to what the department wants to do? How does that relate to what the university is trying to do? And how can you best facilitate all of those things together and, and uh, you know, develop an understanding of that? Absolutely. Well, Derek, thank you so much for a great conversation and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks for being on Acamedia. Thanks for having me on. It's been a great talk. Okay, good stuff. Uh, so, Steph, um, you've probably interacted with more chairs, uh, film and media studies uh, in the past year than uh, a lot of us have. Oh, yes, um, for sure. In lots of interviews and emails where I tried to sound very smart and like a faculty member and not a graduate <laughs> student. <laughs> yeah, so coming at it from my perspective, like chairs are like these scary people who hold the fate of your future in their hands. Um and so you don't really think of like all of the struggles that they have and how hard it is to be a chair and all of the plates that they're balancing and that they have to be a go between the faculty and the grad students and the administration and uh, how hard of a job that is. Um, and so it was really, a, it was a useful perspective to hear, especially coming out of graduate school and just trying to just get that first faculty job, um, just thinking of the longer trajectory and everything else that's going on at universities that are bigger than just me and my job search. Um, so I found that very practical. Yeah, it's, I haven't been a chair. I'm in an administrative position partially um, within my department. And so I'm, you know, have some sense of that, but trying to, um, you know, like all the metaphors you reach for are kind of ridiculous ones, right? You know, like, oh, it's like herding cats and yeah. you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But man, if there is an ungovernable group of people, it's academics. Yeah, it just seems like a very thankless job. You're just having people come at you from every every angle yeah. uh, and criticizing what you're doing, probably, no matter what you decide to do. Yeah. I had a former colleague who always went kind of talking about, like, our own work, you know, like our publishing work, um, as you, like, approach tenure and promotions and stuff. Uh, she always liked to reference um, Glengarry Glen Ross, 
and say, you know, <laughs> ABC always be closing. And, <laughs> and that's like, that seems like natural advice about, um, about what the individual scholar has to be doing, you know, kind of, mm -hmm. um, like always making sure that you're like doing, doing work that's going to be recognized and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but honestly, that's kind of what things come down to institutionally too. Like always connecting your program to another one and, and, um, sponsoring events that bring people together and, you know, just mm -hmm. like all, it's just constantly, I don't want to like reduce it to sales, but there's an awful lot of, um, affective labor just in kind of maintaining relationships and, and building new relationships and, and trying to, you know, keep the trains running on time. Yeah. It just makes me think of how much of being a professor you are never prepared for in graduate school. Like mm -hmm. you're taught, we're barely even taught to teach sometimes. Oh yeah. Like we're taught how to do research and some teaching, but all of the administrative stuff that you're going to eventually have to do, there's just no, you just kind of have to learn as you're doing it. Yeah. And we, yeah, we don't get, um, we have very, very little pedagogic training in general. And I think you're right. Zero organizational, you know, administrative training. It's, it is really kind of sink or swim. Yeah. So it's impressive. Good. <laughs> Being a good chair is an impressive feat. Yeah. Are you watching any TV? <laughs> Do you have any time for TV or movies? Uh, it's really bad and really transitional times in my life when I'm feeling like really sad. I just, I always put on Gilmore Girls. Like it's what I put on when I'm grading or I need something in the background. And before I know it, I'm like, oh, I'm on season four of the show that I've seen 4.3 billion times. I should be watching the great amount of amazing new television that is out. Wow. But instead, sometimes I'll fall back into my comfort TV shows. Hey, what's wrong with that? Absolutely um, nothing. But new shows, I watch The Good Place and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and I'm obsessed and in love with both of those TV shows. Right on. Do you have opinions about the Gilmore Girls reboot? Oh, I thought it was pretty garbage. <laughs> I didn't see it, so I'm so I'm I'm completely in your hands. I only watched it when it first came out, and maybe I'll rewatch it at the end of this current Gilmore Girls binge. But I wasn't a huge fan of it. Fair enough. I have a confession. I haven't, I mean, this might be a, a, a terrible thing to have to admit as a TV scholar, but <laughs> I haven't watched an episode of Doctor Who in an, in at least 35 years um, since one of my brothers used to watch it on PBS in the 70s. Um, oh, wow. You know, the really big scarf and all. Um, and I figured that, you know, I probably kind of ought to be paying attention to it because I guess some people, they like kind of like that show. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so we decided to just jump in and start watching the brand new season with the with the new doctor played by Jodie Whittaker, who we got interested in from watching Broadchurch, mm -hmm. and it's it's wacky. It's wacky. <laughs> yeah, that was a sense that I got of the couple of episodes of Doctor Who I've seen. I was like, this is a really specific style and tone that I can't decide if I am enjoying or not. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a perfect characterization. It is its own very very distinctive phenomenon, and so mm -hmm. so I'm looking forward to kind of wading into that a little bit. Yeah, um, that'll be fun. Acca Media is produced with the support of the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Denison University and the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. You can reach us at, oh man, am I going to get this right? Acca-media.org or on Twitter at Acca 
underscore media.org. Does that sound right? Yeah, I like that you wrote it out just in case you couldn't remember. <laughs> You're not supposed to it's like tell. like at the underscore, underscore, underscore media.org. Oh, I'm so busted now. All right. Well, there you have it. No more secrets. And thanks to Bill Kirkpatrick for interviewing Derek Compare in that wonderful chair interview he did. And also we are grateful to Amy Villarejo from Cornell University who did the interview with B. Ruby Rich from UC Santa Cruz. And that's part of the SCMS Field Notes, which is coordinated by Chris Holmlin, Heidi Wasson, and Mike Zrid. Uh, so I'm Stephanie Brown from St. Louis University, and we're also helped out by Joel Neville Anderson from University of Rochester. Frank Modelli from Stanford University. Bill Kirkpatrick from Denison University, who we've already mentioned once. Chris Becker, who's not with us today, but who is always helping us out and in our hearts uh, from University of Notre Dame. Our audio guru, Todd Thompson from UT Austin. And I'll let you do yourself. I'm me, Michael Kackman at University of Notre Dame. Except I'm a little disappointed that you gave away that I have to write out underscore. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't even notice it until you started reading it. And then I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. That's something I would do, too, to remind myself. Super <laughs> lame. All right. Thank you for listening. Stay warm. And uh, bye. See ya.